so Tori, when you're listening to podcasts, do do you find yourself going on a like a a roller coaster of emotions? Do you let yourself kind of be taken over by a podcast sometimes? Yes, I will say when I'm a listener, I listen to that better. When I'm have my producer hat on and I'm making edits and notes, it's harder for me to get there emotionally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Totally makes sense. You're working. I will say though, I will say though, this episode might have been the unique exception of it's, it was pretty impossible for me to just approach this uh, without being emotionally involved. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's a great distinction because for me, um, you know, when I'm listening to a podcast, it kind of depends on what I'm doing while I'm listening. I mean, you know, a lot of times, I'm sure our listeners, I'm sure you guys will be doing something, whether you're driving or walking or hiking or working out or, you know, um, you know, hopefully not doing heart surgery or anything like that. But I typically listen to it when I'm folding laundry. That's one of my yeah, favorites. Okay, great, great, great. But the point is there will sometimes um, I'll stop what I'm doing because it's like, ooh, I don't want to multitask this. I want mm. this to sink in. And when I'm laughing or whatever, it can happen that way. But there are times when something is so, I don't know what the right, what's the right word? Real, powerful, poignant, that I find myself going, oh, no, wait. I, wa- I want to I hear all of this. Mm-hmm. And that's a really tall order to say, hey, this is going to be one of those podcasts. <laughs> but I'm with you for me personally while we were doing this. That's what I was feeling. Mm was, ooh, wow, we're going places I, I kind of knew we were going to. But I think I was still surprised when, when um, by the way, welcome to a Godzillion in One. Um, and this is going to be uh, another example of those Godzillion different ways that we can connect. But Karen Trieger retired from her law practice and, and, and took on this challenge really of, of, of kind of putting the pieces together of a family story that she'd heard portions of for so many years. You know what it's like when you just hear of like a family story, but you're like, hmm, I think I need to know more of that. And you got to have someone who maybe does a little bit of the research to kind of find the rest of the pieces and put them together. So the result of that sort of journey that she went on is this book that is widely praised, uh, My Soul is Filled with Joy a Holocaust story. And I don't know what it was like for you listening in, but as she, as she basically describes the journey of her in-laws, her dad, I'm sorry, her husband's parents, Sam and Esther Goldberg. Well, let me ask you, was there a thought that just kept hanging in the back of your head or were there, were there certain things that you thought of when you heard her describe the story of her mother and father-in-law? Yes. I'd say there are a few the first was just heartbreak of I can't believe every time I hear a story of the Holocaust, I can't believe this really happened of just, I think you guys even touch on it of we have these concepts of knowing historically what was going on. And some of us have anecdotes of figures and numbers of lives lost, but to hear really specifically how two families fought 
survived against all odds the Holocaust and then fell in love during the Holocaust of it was just breathtaking. Um, the other thought was I would a hundred percent watch this movie or this mini series because I need to know more. I need to read this book. No I needed more than an hour long podcast no with you guys. It was just no kidding. Well, and I think the other thing as we talked about it was that, you know, history is history and some people uh, are like hooked into, you know, stories that are historical and they, they, you know, uh, there are other people that will always say, okay, so what does that mean for me today? This is one of those stories where you go, oh, wait, I hate to, you know, and we, I, th I think we even talk about this, but there are other holocausts and there are other uh, just heartbreaking injustices that happen in our world and have happened. And to me, um, the danger in any of those, whether it's something as recent as, as, as things that are happening in, in, in our world today, things that are happening, uh, happened, you know, two, three decades ago, things that happened, uh, 200 years ago. The danger for me is that it just becomes a, a a footnote in a history book and you go, Oh, isn't that a shame? Hmm. And what just grabbed me was, I know it's real, but when you hear personal stories and you hear love <laughs> finding its way in the middle of a horror, it's unbelievable. It gave me such hope and it made, it made the Holocaust so real. I mean, the bravery hmm get to know really through Karen just telling us the story. Um, <laughs> I don't want to scoop the story, but like hiding in a forest when you've escaped from the most notorious of Nazi death camps, falling in love, being cared for by people who are Christians, the fear of being found out, the whole thing to me spoke of not just the ugliness and the horror that ha that shows up in in our histories but the hope and and just the the power of i don't know love not giving up it, it it's a thing i mean the title of her book my soul is filled with joy you read the first part and you're like oh okay and then the next three words a holocaust story they seem like they would not fit together yeah yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, as a producer, will you go ahead and explain what you just told me a second ago about how this this one really isn't going to end the way that a lot of our podcasts do, and that is by design? Yeah, so you guys have been around with us for a little while. You know we typically end with the and one questions and uh, the way to go awards. And just kind of after sifting through some of this, we just decided that didn't feel like the appropriate way to close it. Of It felt like we were trying to end just because the other episodes ended that way. Um, so you'll notice that this episode, we actually, it'll just end with you and Karen talking and it'll, there'll be this heaviness of the story, but there will still be that hope and that joy. Um, but we want you guys to sit with this story. I don't, we don't want any distractions of oh my goodness. any other things going on. Just sit with this yeah. one. Yeah, it, it, it'll do your heart good and it'll blow your mind all at the same time. And so let's not wait any further. Let's jump into this really, I think, profound conversation with Karen Triger. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so I'm here with Karen Trager and Karen, uh, I think context is really important. Would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your family? I can't wait to talk to you about this journey in this book, but just give us a little bit of, of who you are. I'm really thrilled to be here. So thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm a Seattle native and I grew up here, went to went to school, both undergraduate and, and law school on the East Coast, uh, where I that is and in Washington, worked in Washington, D.C. for a little while. That's, that's where I met my husband, um, Sheldon or Shlomo Goldberg. And in we got married in 1984. And that's when I first met his family. and. Um, learned of their story related to what happened to them in the Holocaust and in Europe. They're from Poland, grew up in Poland. They were in the early 20s when the when the when when World War II began. And uh, having grown up here in Seattle, even though I grew up in a Jewish community and, and in a Jewish family, I knew about the Holocaust, but I hadn't really had really close personal relationships with people who had survived the, the horrors of those years. And so for me, when I first heard their story, I was like, this, someone's really got to write this down. No one really did it. I was busy with my life here. I was practicing law and raising four kids. Life is short. And if you don't do what you want to do now, it, it's just probably not going to happen. So I just decided to leave my practice and um, write this book. So I jumped in with both feet. It took me three years, start to finish. And we published it in um, October of uh, 2018. And it's been a fantastic journey, both writing, researching and writing the book, and then putting it out into the world and hearing the reactions and the reflections about what people are learning from it. Right. Okay. Well, I want to get to the book itself, but just to back up a little bit. So you're hearing from your in-laws, Sam and Esther, as we will learn to know them and, and really just kind of, uh, I don't know, fall in love, awe of them. I don't know. Along the way, the Passover meal was an important part of this, particularly with your father-in-law, Sam. So can, could you just get us into that? And I, 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 is it fair to say that, that Sam and Esther had different, had different approaches to what they were willing to share about their experiences? Um, so I just love, let's start with a little bit of why the, 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 the Passover meal was such an important setting for Sam to, to begin to tell his story. Sure. So um, the Passover Seder is a gathering um, usually of family and close friends. And in the Goldberg family, the whole family got together and uh, sat around a very large table. And on Passover, what we are commemorating and, and, and celebrating is the biblical story of the Jews um, being freed from slavery in, in, in Egypt after a, of, after a 400 year enslavement. Um, God releases them from bondage with the help of Moses and they, and they leave after all. You know, we all, if you know your Bible, you know, the story of the 10 plagues and the whole, and then they, the, the sea is split and, 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 and they leave. And then they go into the desert and receive the Torah and enter a covenant with God. And for Sam, he didn't talk about like what happened to him a lot, like just around the dinner table kind of situation. He was just a, you know, just a, a person who likes to talk about wrestling and card playing and, you know, his businesses. So, but Passover really uh, resonated with him because he was a slave. He was a slave in Treblinka. He was a captured prisoner who was forced to work for the Nazis. He was a, he ran the laundry. 
which at Treblinka, ironically, was a, a good job. Um, but he was a slave there. And then there was an uprising that he was part of. And then he escaped and he saw that his, his own his own personal story as his own personal exodus from his his slavery. The story is even closer in parallel because then the first thing that happened to him when he was running like hell out of the out of the camp, everyone was just running for their lives. I'm sure we'll get into that later, but he was running and running and the first obstacle he ran into was a river and he couldn't swim. And he the Nazis are chasing behind him with guns and knives and everything dogs and he's like, "Well, I'm jumping in. Whatever happens, happens. He jumps in. He doesn't know how to swim. He goes unconscious and he then wakes up. He did not die. He didn't drown. He ended up floating onto the side and woke up. The sea didn't split for him, but he saw it that way. He saw that, that he jumped into the river and, and God saved him. God made a way. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get, yeah. I don't want to ruin the whole story now, but then he was ultimately um, saved by what happened next. So when you, when I've been uh, a part of of a setting like that, you know, stories are just so integral. And of course, you're telling the story of the Exodus. But what you're saying is, Sam is now feeling inspired, motivated, making these connections, and he's telling the story of his Exodus. Esther had a little bit of a different um, willingness to share some of her experiences. Is that is that fair to say? Very fair. Esther did not share her experiences, yeah. and. Um, really she, she never would talk about it with me. Um, one time, one of her daughters got her to sit down and share a bit on a video. And that was very crucial help and helpful because when I decided to write this book, they were both passed on, they were both dead. And so I couldn't actually ask them any questions. What I did see with Esther is when we used to go and visit, there wasn't a day that she didn't step out onto her little patio and cry. She just took a moment for herself and would cry, and then she'd come back in and keep going. So it wasn't a day that went by that she didn't feel the sadness, the grief, the the depression of of having lived through that. And it really, it would have been enough if it, she had just survived the, the Holocaust. But after I delved into her story and found out some more details of what happened to her. Like I understood better why a, she didn't want to talk about it and B it was just an everyday sadness in her life. The, the depth of trauma is hard to overstate. And, you know, for many of us, we, we historically know or have heard or maybe read a book or saw a movie. And so we think we have these connections of truly what the Holocaust, okay, so it must have been this and it was like this, but there's there's simply no way to to fully comprehend this. But I do think I do think that when we can put names and faces and uh you know, uh, now I don't want to jump ahead, but for me the most emotional part of of being at Yad Vashem is the Hall of Names. And just these are names and these are faces. These are real people. This is not theory. These are people with stories. And so I think we should, let's just begin to talk about this. So, so you started researching these two stories. How did you delve into this when they had both passed on by now? How, how did this start? So previously before, while they were alive, um, Sam 
did do a couple of interviews on video. Um, one was with the Shoah Foundation, which was the most extensive and well done one. The other one was done by my husband, just with our home video camera. Um, both of them were his his native language was Yiddish, and so both of those interviews were in Yiddish. And so even years before this, before I decided to do this, while they were still alive, I said to my husband, I said, you know, these it, these interviews are very lovely, but once you and your sisters die, that's it. No one's going to be available for these interviews anymore because they're in Yiddish and nobody in the next generation speaks Yiddish. We were motivated and he translated them. Uh, he translated both of the videos into English and I typed out all the transcripts. So right. I had these transcripts of the interview and Esther's short interview that she did with her, with her daughter that I mentioned was in English. So I had that. And I had these now. And so I basically, I mean, they've been sitting in my file for years. I'm like, okay, well, that's where I start. And I just started by reading them. And what I, I did two things at first to start that just sort of um, loaded my cannon and shot me into the, into the stratosphere. I did two things. One is I made a timeline for each, for each family um, because their, their stories are separated until August of 1943 when they meet each other, they're separate stories. And so I made timelines, not just of what happened to them, but also of historical events. And then I looked at their interviews and I asked myself, what isn't clear? What do I need to fill in? Where are the holes? And once I identified the holes, I could just go after those and jump into them and kind of like, you know, Alice sure. in Wonderland, down a little rabbit hole, I would go down. And then as I was filling in the gaps and learning the stories more fully, and I didn't leave any rock unturned. That's like, that's one thing that I'm really proud of. I did not stop. When someone said, try this, I tried this. And then it led me to more and more and more information. We've waited long enough. We need to get into the plot of this a little bit. I, I have to say, though, as you were talking, what you did was you unearthed, you know, I mean, we see this all over, even in Treblinka, you know, they, they tried to just cover it over and and build a farmhouse and didn't, you know, just even deny the existence of this and what you're doing is you're unearthing this story but it is such a rich story that i think you're right let's 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 talk about both plot lines and and you pick which one first you know how to tell this story best uh but we'd love to hear a little bit of sam and esther and then how they meet and if it's okay i've, I've got lots of questions in the middle of this you jump in with any questions you have i'll start with esther i'll do a short intro the sort of the climax is where how and where where they meet each other so esther's family lived in a small town a shtetl commonly called the shtetl uh, which is a small town mostly made up of, of jewish people her father was a teacher of young children in yiddish it's called a malamed and her mother was a, a homemaker she had four other siblings um the entire family except for esther you know to jump to the very end were were murdered by the nazis during the war and um, when the Nazis first came in in 1939, her town was attacked and her their home was burnt down to the ground. So they had to leave. They didn't have anywhere to go. But what was going on in city after city and town after town, as the Nazis came in, many, many Jews realized this was not going to be a safe place to stay. Germany and the Soviet Union had made an agreement to split Poland down the middle. And half of it, the eastern half was controlled by the Soviet Union and the western half was controlled by Germany. So hundreds of thousands of Jews crossed that border 
and moved into the part of Poland that was controlled by the Soviet Union, even though it was it was a communist system, life wasn't super simple, but there was nobody out to to kill you. Esther's family was named Vishnu. That's what the Vishnu family did. They ended up in Slonim and they lived there and they were handling on the black market and just trying to make a living. And they did. They had enough money to live and they were all together. Uh, but then that changed dramatically when Hitler ripped up the agreement between Germany and the Soviet Union and attacked the Soviet Union, June of 1941. Before, there wasn't a real solid plan, shall we say, of how to get rid of the Jews. Hitler's main ideas were just to get rid of them and send them somewhere else. There shouldn't be any Jews you know, in German territories because the Jews were the the devils and the cockroaches of the world and needed to be eliminated or just gotten rid of. It became clear that to get rid of the Jews was not as simple as he thought, and it was best just to kill them where they lived. And so that's when the mass murder began. They had a special group of soldiers whose job was to round up the Jews of each town and 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 shoot them one by one into a pit. And that is in fact what happened to Esther's family who were living in Slonim, along with 10,000 other Jews who were living in that town. So these are these are like death squads. Yeah, these are death squads. Einsatzgruppen, is that who these are? The, the name in German is Einsatzgruppen. That's the German name of this troop of, of soldiers yeah, that had yeah. this, this job. They were a small group. They couldn't have done it by themselves. They There's lots of books written about how they got the locals of the of the areas. Everywhere they went, they got locals to come and help them. And that's how they managed to kill so many people, a million people within a year on the eastern side of, of the border. So her family was exterminated, essentially, minus her. Yeah, shot one by yeah. one into this pit, along with 10,000 other people. And the only reason that she wasn't part of that extermination program was because she was in the hospital. She was suffering from typhus. In my research, I found this fact that completely blew my mind, that I just actually pray to this day that Esther actually didn't know about. When she heard about her family being murdered and all with, along with everyone else, I, I, it was very hard for me to put myself in that moment and imagine what that felt like, which I tried, but I realized that was impossible. But then she just was well enough and she said, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go home, home meaning back to, to her, her shtetl called Stuchik. Two days after she left the hospital, the Nazis came back to kind of clean up and get whatever Jews they missed. And they went to that hospital, which was filled with Jews, and shot every patient in their bed. So she missed the mass killing in the pit because she was in the hospital. And she missed the hospital massacre because she just got up and left. I, I I don't really have words to describe like what that, trying to process it, and what that must have done for her. I, like I said, I she never mentioned that. And I obviously didn't have the chance to ask her. So I don't know if she knew what happened in the hospital. I kind of hope she didn't. She did go back to her town, took a couple months, but she made it back. There's a lot more in the book. I mean, you're already giving us the, just even more, though, the reason why this woman would step out on her porch in her patio in Miami every day just to just to regather because that trauma and the echo of that trauma, just how could it not still be there? So if we leave Esther in her town now, um, I mean, it gets into a very dark part of the story, but you know, it's in the book. She married her, her boyfriend, her boyfriend 
the name was Moshe Kviatik, they got married somewhere along the way. He also survived that huge massacre. And so they were living back with his family in this town. His family had stayed there and they were living with them and working in their business of, it was a soda factory. They made like seltzer and flavored seltzers and that kind of thing. Pause and just take a step back and see what was going on with Sam at the time. The Goldberg family lived in a farming village. It's really, really small, but they had a, quite a large farm in that village. The farm was made up of Jewish families and non-Jewish families. They traded in, in both in crops and in timber and in cattle. And uh, Sam had five siblings. Um, by the time the war started, all of his siblings were married already. He was the only one not married. He was the second to youngest in the family. So when, again, the Nazis came in and conquered the small village and told the Jews to leave, his siblings had already left and crossed that border. Their town was pretty close to that, to the, that border between the, the German side of Poland and the Soviet side. And ironically, his brothers and sisters, most of them, one went further, deeper into Russia, and no one actually knows whatever happened. No one ever heard from her. So presumably she was murdered. But the other ones went to Slunim and lived in Slunim. So presumably they all were massacred at the same time that Esther's family was, but those families didn't know each other. So, but Sam stayed with his parents and they went just over the border to be with some relatives. Sam ended up getting um, taken into the Soviet army because he was of age and they took him into the army and he became a soldier. And that's where he was being a soldier in the army, fixing bridges when that moment in June of 1941 came when the Germans attacked. So he's a Soviet soldier. He survived that. Hundreds of soldiers were killed in that initial attack. Um, he survived because he hid under a half-built bridge. But he described the scene when he came out from that bridge, and he said there were dead soldiers everywhere. And he was captured extremely quickly with the other soldiers that were alive and put into a POW camp, a German POW camp. And this was routine. I found this in, in, in a couple different history books. Um, it was routine in these camps. The Nazis would call out the Soviet officers, the Soviet political officers and the Jews one by one at groups and they would just kill them all. And so when they called out the Jews and said, all Jews step forward, Sam was really ready to step forward. He was so tired. He was so, he was starving. He was just like, I'm just going to end this now. A friend of his, who was this big man from Kafkaz in the Ukraine, grabbed him and said, no, you stay with me. And so he didn't go and that saved him. And then together with this friend, they escaped one night. Um, out of the, he had some wire cutters and they got out and they escaped. And that is a whole, a whole sub story of how he escaped, actually really escaped and got back to where his parents were. Right. So this is when he escaped from a Nazi POW camp. Yeah. This is the first escape. And and I can't help but notice here, and you, you draw this out in, in your, in your work, but this idea of community, this idea of there were men and women who were doing this together, who were surviving together who were prevailing over this evil together and this big burly ukrainian is is really i mean he stepped in at a very pivotal moment in sam's life very pivotal sam's sam's now escaped he's back to his 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 family through through the grapevine they he and other people in that area where his parents were living heard that it was um a better place 
to live if you cross back over the border and go find a town there to live in because they weren't rounding up Jews on the on the German side. They were this was all east of the border. So he with some friends went to the other side, back to the what was the German controlled side where he came from and um ended up in the town of Stuchik where Esther Stettel where she was already living. They don't know each other yet. So we have to imagine how big is that town? Oh my gosh. Uh, well, let's put it this way. When the Nazis finally came and rounded up all the Jews of Stuchik, there were about 400 Jews living there. But in its in its heyday, I imagine there were maybe a couple thousand. But still a very small town. They don't know each other yet. Right. And so it's there that Sam gets captured by the Nazis in June of 1942 and taken just with 125 other men by truck to this place called Treblinka. It was like, it's 15 miles away. It's very close by. And when he got there, he describes it. He's like, why, what are we doing here? Like, this isn't, it was just an open field. There was like nothing there. There was one shack, but they took these men and they forced them. They became prisoners and slaves to build what became the Treblinka death camp where, you know, 800,000 people were murdered eventually. Um, but he was there and had to build the camp with these other men. They built the barracks. They built they built everything except the gas chambers because that was done by German mechanics and architects. Um, and so that's how he ends up in Treblinka. At what point do these men that are building basically these vehicles for their own destruction, at what point do they understand that that's what's going on. Well, let's put it this way. Sam got there probably in, in early June of 1942. And the first train load of Jews from Warsaw, it was built there because of its proximity to Warsaw and the large Jewish population, half a million Jews in Warsaw. And it was built really to murder the Jews of Warsaw. Um, it did more than that, but that's that was the main purpose of why it was there. The first train arrived on the 23rd of July. So not long at all. No. So it's a death camp. There's a difference between a death camp and a concentration camp. A concentration camp, many people were killed right away, I understand, but a lot, a lot of people were were taken for labor and kept as prisoners and as a workforce for the German military machine. Like Auschwitz, for example, was there were thousands and thousands of people who just had to work every day. And death camp, you didn't stay there unless you were this small core group of about 800 people that Sam was part of. That that did the labor of the camp, including you know dealing with the hor the horrific aspects of a of a, of the dead bodies and what to do with them and how to dispose of them. If you weren't in that core group that of of slaves, basically, this is a very shocking piece of information that I'm going to state right now. But you were dead in 90 minutes. Mm. Mm. 90 minutes from arriving there. Mm -hmm, yes. Yeah, so just let that settle in. So these truly were, these were machines of extermination. Yeah, it was a death factory. So Sam has built this. He is a part of the 800 that are now keeping this horrific machine moving. So time is going on, and every day you don't know if you're going to be alive at the end of the day or not exactly. But he found himself alive at the end of every day. As time went on, like there's there's lots of things written about Treblinka. And I have two chapters in the book about Treblinka itself. 
Um, but if you want more, there's, you know, there's tons to read about Treblinka. But let's start with the fact that about 800,000 people were murdered there and only 60 people survived. Over 800,000 people were murdered there and 60 survived. Right. Six zero. It's really hard to process. I am trying to just, and I've read this stuff and I've read what you've written. I'm still, tr- I'm having a hard time getting this into my head or my heart. I just got to tell you. Over, t- mm. over time, the group of workers, a small, a small group of men, they were all men that, that got together in secret to discuss how to, how to get out, how to break out. They tried this, they had this little plan, that little plan, but the plan that actually was executed was August 2nd, 1943. So Sam had been there for 13 months now. It was a group of 50 men in each were in different, there were different cells and different cell leaders so that each group, each cell wouldn't know too much about the whole operation in case they were captured and tortured to give the information forward. So Sam was in one of the cells and he was part of the planning and execution of the, of the uprising. And the day of the uprising was a very confusing day. I've read all the memoirs of people who wrote about it. Everybody's got a little bit of a different story about what went wrong because something went wrong in the beginning. It didn't go as it was supposed to, but it did go. There was an engineer who had wired um, explosives to blow up the the gas. The ga- there was a gas station, let's just call it, for the Germans to fill their tanks and whatnot. And they blew it up. And that started the uprising. And everybody realized what was happening right away. And everybody, they blew a big hole in the in the fence. Everybody starts running, just every person for themselves. There was a part of the plan was to kill the guards, the Ukrainian guards in the watchtowers first. So they could have a clear line to get out without being shot. But that didn't work. So the Ukrainians are up there shooting them as they're running. It's like half the people didn't even get out of the fence. Sam did. And he ran and he ran and he ran. Like I said, he first he ran into this river, but then he kept running and he ran to this part of the forest. And that's part of the forest is where he met Esther. And what was Esther doing there? Right. After Treblinka was up and running, they came back to that town close by, like low hanging fruit, honestly, right? To round up the Jews of that town of Stuchik to take them to Treblinka. Esther and her husband and a couple of their family members hid in an attic and weren't found. So after three days of, of hiding, they came down from the attic and the town was now a ghost town. No one was there. And they, they went around to their Polish neighbors to try to get some food and for someone to hide them. They were turned away over and over again. Get away. I can't help you. I'm going to turn you into the Germans. Get away. They kept going a little bit farther and they ended up knocking on the door of this woman named Helena Stisch, who they knew from their business. They were, they were customers. They knocked on the door and they told Helena what happened. And they said, we need some food and we need to hide. And she said, I will help you. Why she did that, unclear. She was a good human being. There were other good human beings, you'd think, but most of them wouldn't help. But she stepped up and she saw the situation and she saw these people as humans, not as the other. And she helped them and they, she gave them food and they hid in and around their farms during that time. And it was around that time when they were hiding and managing in the, uh, to stay away from the Nazis that her husband was shot in the forest. So her husband was murdered in the forest. And so now she was hiding together with her, her husband's brother. So her teenage brother-in-law, they were doing the best they could hiding and scrounging for food and hiding during the day and only coming out at night. The Stish family did give them food, but 
they didn't even have that much food, right? They were big families. It was wartime. So they gave them some food, but it wasn't enough. So they were always looking for food. She was always hungry. But then she meets Sam. Sam, they knew each other were Jewish, like right away. And Esther looked awful. Sam described her as lice covered. He says, I just escaped from Treblinka. And she's like, what? Because everyone knew what was going on at Treblinka at that time. And um, she took him over to Helena and knocked on the door and said, this man just escaped from Treblinka. You have to hide us. They're searching everywhere for the for the escaped prisoners. And Helena was like, are you nuts? Are you out of your mind? If they come here and find you, my whole family's dead, which, which is true. That would have certainly been true. Somehow Esther convinced her to hide them. They hid in the barn for a few days until the search was over. Oh, wow. And then they came out. So it was Sam and Esther and the brother-in-law, whose name was Chaim. And together they decided the safest thing to do would be to go deeper into the forest and dig a pit in the ground, cover it with, with planks. And they, had a, they, they did a rope pulley system. So it, they could, when they were inside, they could pull it on top of them or get it off of them. And they lived in that pit like animals for most of the next year, except when it was super cold. When it was super cold, they lived in this one of the Stish family's barns, hiding inside a box that they faked um, to look like a haystack. But that's how they survived, hiding basically all day and coming out at night for the bit of food that the Stishes would leave for them, which they did. And they lived like that together, the three of them, until the Russians liberated that part of of, of Poland, which was the summer around July of 1944. Um, then they were, they were freed. They were freed after that. They got married three months later. So someplace in there, they're not just surviving, they're falling in love. They're, they're you know, someplace in this extraordinary story. But I want to go back just one second so that I'm getting the numbers right on this. There, there were only 60 survivors of Treblinka, but in this uprising, which a lot of people don't know about, the, the Treblinka uprising. I mean, that was, that was an extraordinary moment where you just, I, I can't imagine what that was like to organize and to, to really stand up against that kind of power when everything in you had to be screaming powerlessness in, you know, in, your, in your own life. But like how many people even made it out in the chaos? Because I understand that the SS guards were all in shock and there was chaos and everything. How many people even made it out of the camp? Well, the best estimates are that there were about 800 prisoners in the camp that day. The the workers. Okay. Okay. You know, no one has exact numbers, but everything that I've read leads me to say that about half the people were killed on the way out by the Ukrainian guards. And of those that got out, um, so that number 60 includes people who escaped Treblinka earlier before the uprising. The trains would come with, with the Jews on them. They would take the Jews out and kill them. The slaves' job was to collect the clothes of the dead people and wrap them up. And well, many of them Sam washed in the laundry and then put them back on these trains and send them back to Germany. A lot of people would jump into the, into the car that had all the clothes and like hide themselves under the clothes. And there were there are about there are about three or four memoirs written by people who who did that. Um, so some people escape different ways. Gentleman who was the commandant of Treblinka at the time of the uprising was a man named um, Stengel. He was convicted. He was tried in the Nuremberg trials and convicted of crimes against humanity and genocide and put into jail. 
But there's a woman who went to his prison and interviewed him over months. She went every day, like, and interviewed him and talked to him. And she wrote a book about this interview. There's this incredible thing that he says, which is when we went out to try to recapture the, the, the people who escaped on that day of the uprising, we ended up capturing more people than actually escaped. They captured, they recaptured most of them, not all of them, but most of them. But they got even more because they found Jews who were hiding. The miracle of the fact that Esther and Chaim and now Sam hiding didn't get found becomes more, more astounding. We know of the 50 people who planned the uprising and executed the uprising, which Sam was one, only 12 survived. So it, it you know, the phrase against all odds is so overused, but you're talking about a man who escapes and is one of really just a few. And here is Esther, who is someone who wasn't, uh, you know, caught up in the the gathering of more people in the in the forest. And here are the two of them now living for a year or more in this hole, falling in love. You know, the end of the war eventually comes, or at least the liberation of Poland happens first. At some point, they obviously uh, make their way to the U.S. and they and they. Uh, and, and, and the rest of the story. And I, and I guess my question to you is there are, as I, I'm looking at, at what you've written, there are, we look through Sam's, uh, I think you even use this term lens. We look through Sam's lens and Esther's lens, but there's, but there's Karen's lens too. There's this, what, how this has affected you. I mean, it's affecting me again, as I'm re-experiencing this. And, and Karen, I just have to confess to you, some of this is uh, the wrongness of this. I hope we never, I hope this always makes us take pause, but I have questions for you about, about you and how this has affected your perspective and, and maybe even some questions about how we can find meaning and, and understand some things about this. But I, I'm just wondering what comes to mind when you're thinking of kind of your journey and how this has affected you. Uh, I can only imagine. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. It affected me very deeply. Um, on, I would say that when you look at evil in the face and like really spend three years trying to, well, not being able to understand how humans can do these kinds of things to other humans, but then understanding better this horrible construct that we have, as humans have created of of tribalism and of making other people into less than human. And then once you make them into less than human, which is what the Nazis did, um, you can, you can murder them. Um, it's, this is not the only time in history no. that this has happened. No. Unfortunately, it's been over and over. If we look at our own United States history, we did it with slaves in the South. They became less than human. So it was okay to enslave them. The, the really, trying thing is that since the Holocaust, there have been other genocides that happened and in Rwanda and in other places. And it's just mind boggling how humans continually keep doing this. So I kind of came to a, I had to, I struggled with, are we all that bad? Like potentially, could we all be these horrible people? Or could some of us like the very few people like the stitches could overcome that instinct of fear and and otherness and 
of course, I always thought like, oh, well, that would be me, you know, saving somebody. But I'm, I don't know if I would have. She put her whole family in danger. She had children. They all would have been killed if they had been found. So I, I came to the sort of very uncomfortable place of living in a space of understanding that we humans, each of us, what we choose to express is a choice. Whether we choose to express sort of that evil aspect of ourselves or the good aspect of ourselves. And it becomes choices that we make in our lives and what we do grounded myself in this idea that if I, even if they're small decisions, even if they're small choices, that the more I um, get myself used to making choices that I think will lead to kindness and goodness, then the more that that can influence others. So in my small way, I've just been trying to make choices that are good and good for other people. That's one thing that really kind of um, changed in me, really an awareness of that and of everyday choices. Um, the second really big thing that hit me is was the issue of gratitude. When we went to back to Poland to visit and meet the, re the remnants of the Stish family, the next generations, there were three of the Stish children who were alive and during the war that we got to meet. And one of them was this man now in his 80s, who was nine years old during the war. His name is Ganyak Stish. And he's the one who, when Sam and Esther and Chaim were hiding in the pit, would go every day because he was a child and he wasn't like suspicious because you were hiding not just from the Nazis, but from your Polish neighbors who would turn in the Jews and the whole family. And so he would be the one to take a, like a pail of food and leave it near the pit so they could get it after dark and have some something to eat. And he walked us out into the forest and said, I will show you the pit that your parents lived in. Oh, my. Oh, my. Right. That's what we said. We couldn't believe that it was still there. And he said, it's still there. Now, it was eroded 75 years later. It was full of leaves. It was, you know, but you could see a pit. That was the exact place that they were, as my husband would say, buried alive for a year. And at that moment, we were all crying. And I just said to myself, you know, Karen, you can never take what you have for granted anymore. Yes, yes. If you ever thought that your nice bed and your nice house with a refrigerator and a heater and a toilet, if you thought that was just usual, think again. And I realized how lucky I am and how grateful I have to be for everything and for the people in my life. And it changed the way that I approach just about everything in my life. You know, Karen, I'm hearing you say that even that is a choice. We, we choose to, to pursue this gratitude. We choose to not, um, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but you know, when, when uh, Martin Buber talks about I, thou and I, it relationships, we choose to see someone as a thou and not an it. These are choices that we make, um, but we choose to be grateful. We, we we choose to pursue that in these moments. And I can't help but when you're talking there, it seems to me like sometimes the the the, the more clearly I see evil, 
I, I would just say the more I long for righteousness, the more I long for that which is not evil. And it, clearly, there were failures by so many uh, non-Jews in in that moment and in that story. Um, and it's it's I, I, there's nothing I can say. Right. I mean, it's just it's there. But there were those few Gentiles, like the ones that you're mentioning. And the, so the, the the term righteous Gentiles just comes to mind. And some people haven't heard that term. And, you know, maybe they remember that term if they saw Schindler's List all those years ago. But it seems like this Stitch family, that's who they were. Am, am I tracking right with that? hundred percent. And I loved what you said about that sort of living with an awareness of, of gratitude is a choice also, because that's really, that's really true. You have to choose to, to open your eyes, to, to allow the gratitude to be part of your life. And, you know, one of the, one of the first things I did when we got back from our trip, which was in, in 20, summer of 2016 was, you know, so I'm a lawyer by, by training. And, um, I put together a case, put together a brief, uh, as a case, you have to try a case before the Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in, in Jerusalem, Israel, um, in order to nominate um, someone to be listed as a righteous Gentile. It's, a, it's an honor that is bestowed by the state of Israel through, through this Yad Vashem, through their Holocaust Memorial Museum. I put together an entire packet with, with affidavits and like, I, I just went to town. And, um, of course it was my husband who had to do it because only a survivor or a child of a survivor can nominate someone. It couldn't be like just a random Karen Driver. So, um, it was all, but I did all the work and I presented it to my husband and he's like, this is great. He signed it. And we, we sent it back to Israel with, with someone. I was like, I didn't want to send it in the mail. I was too afraid. So I sent it with someone who was going to Israel and they, they delivered it and it was delivered and um, it was, they, they take this very seriously. There's a whole, whole committee and it can take anywhere between six months and two years because they do their own research and it's a whole thing. It's way, way bigger than what I ever thought it was. So long story short, we actually got um, an answer about six months later and um, there's happy news and sad news. The happy news is that there were two Stish families that helped. They lived next door to each other. And one of the Stish families got um, awarded this honor and the other one did not. And so their name is forever engraved in literally it, engraved in the wall. They have a wall yes. with all the names. Yes, it is literally engraved there. But it's more importantly, it's it's in their online system. So anybody who is looking up names or looking up stories, they're going to find that there. And I'm very proud that we were able to to make that happen. And that's us showing the gratitude to that family, a very meaningful thing to do and experience to have. Well, it's one of those things where, you know, even uh, Yad Vashem means a memorial and a name. And, and so this, this, this name, this, this, this saying the name out loud is so important, you know, and, and that's what you're doing. You are, you're saying these things out loud, and I do think that's a part of it. Um, when you mentioned Rwanda, um, Yad Vashem is its own 
you and I could talk about my experience at Yad Vashem. And I'm just glad it's set in a beautiful setting and there's, and, and there's fresh air when you walk out of there to just, I needed it. Um, but I needed that when I was in Rwanda too. And so uh, in that genocide museum, there's a section. And when I take people there, I say, you, you can either go to this section or not. And there's so much as you can imagine, but it's a section dedicated to children who were lost in the genocide. And they have, they have photos and stories of these kids, because again, it's not quite as far back in history and you, you can, you can gather this information. And I just, I had a friend who, who actually challenged me to do this first. Um, but there were two girls, sisters, and I have a photo in my phone of these two girls and their names. And, and my, my friend had said, I just feel motivated to say the names of these kids out loud. And these two girls, I, I'm a father of two girls. And I was like, you know what? They're going to stay on my phone. These, these names are going to stay. I'm going to say these names out loud because we can't forget this evil and we can't forget that how easy it is for us to slide into this. And we cannot forget the courage and the, and the faithfulness of people in, in each of these stories. And I think what you're doing with your book is certainly celebrating Sam and Esther, but it seems to me like you're saying an awful lot more. And uh, I'm, I'm just grateful that you, that, that you've, done this and that you've put it to words and and we're going to give people in our show notes a way to to make sure that they know how to to get the book and uh and i think you know what i think we'll make sure that we just put the the yad vashem uh information on there as well i think these are good things for people to know again i just want to say thank you for sharing uh for the way you've shared uh, sam and esther's story and really your own story uh and your family's story in the book but just thanks for taking time with us and, and really just helping each of us to consider some things that uh, that certainly are in the past, but but that these realities are echoing into today. And I just appreciate you taking the time to to share your heart and your and, and Sam and Esther's story with us. So, Karen, thank you one more time. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to a Godzillion and one podcast. Subscribe, share this episode with a friend, and head over to gregholder.com for the show notes. And as always, stop and notice this week the shockingly and seemingly endless ways to connect with each other, this world, and the God who made it all. We'll see you next time.